This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Today is Sunday the 12th of May, which happens to coincide with uh, Mother's Day in Australia, Mm -hmm. 2019. The the title of the talk I'm giving today is called um, Actualising yourself as reality. Um, but first of all, um, I'd just like to acknowledge our mothers, uh, those who are still living, may they be uh, safe and uh, healthy and happy. And uh, for those of them who have passed away, uh, may they rest serenely in eternal samadhi. <clears throat> and um, I'd just like to read out a poem um, in dedication to both our actual mothers and, uh, and the, the mother of all Buddhas or the mother of all things. Um, it's a song, the title of the poem is Song. It's a very early poem by Allen Ginsberg, written in 1954. The weight of the world is love. Under the burden of solitude, under the burden of dissatisfaction, the weight, the weight we carry is love. Who can deny? In dreams it touches the body, in thought constructs a miracle, in imagination anguishes till born inhuman, looks out of the heart burning with purity, for the burden of life is love. But we carry the weight wearily, and so must rest in the arms of love at last, must rest in the arms of love. No rest without love, no sleep without dreams of love. Be mad or chill, obsessed with angels or machines, the final wish is love, cannot be bitter, cannot deny, cannot withhold if denied. The weight is too heavy. Must give for no return as thought is given in solitude. In all the excellence of its excess, the warm bodies shine together in the darkness. The hand moves to the centre of the flesh The skin trembles in happiness. 
and the soul comes joyful to the eye. Yes, yes, that's what I wanted. I always wanted, I always wanted to return to the body where I was born. So this morning we're going to examine uh, our exploration of, of life and death from the perspective of the wisdom teachings, the Heart Sutra teachings. Yesterday we looked at the human aspect, more relative aspect, uh, and in particular we're going to be uh, uh, looking at a text by the Japanese Zen master Dogen. Dogen was born in 1200. He died in his early 50s. It's a very good uh, Japanese movie that was made of his life a few years ago. Um, his, uh, his father was, I think, a a government, a high government official, can't remember now, but his father died when he was quite young and then his mother died when he was, I think about eight or something like that, and, and he entered the monastery at a young age, in the early adolescence, as they did in those years. Um, in, that, in that particular historical, cultural time, um, it was quite a widespread notion of Zen Buddhism that um, all beings by nature had Buddha nature, that uh, enlightenment, they called it original enlightenment. And um, the big burning question that the young Dogen had was, if all beings have Buddha nature, why did Buddhas and ancestors have to arouse body-mind the desire for enlightenment and practice. Why does anyone have to practice if we all have this original enlightenment? And uh, so he, uh, he, he went on a journey and uh, in those days it would have been a long journey from Japan to China in search of the authentic Chan teachings of in, in, in China, Zen was Chan. In, in Japan, it's called Zen. In China, it was Chan. Uh, it just means meditation, I think. And um, anyway, he, he finally found his teacher and, uh, in, in China and uh, dropped off body and mind, had his realization, was given transmission, and uh, returned to Japan where he established uh, a couple of monasteries before finally settling down. And he was the founder of what's known as Soto Zen. So the, there's a, the school of uh, Zen in China, which was called Chaodong, but not that's pronounced right, but became Soto Zen in, in Japan. And uh, in a way, he found an answer to his practice about why, why, why practice. And his answer was something along the lines of just practice, not to escape or try to escape this realm of samara, not to seek nirvana, not to seek enlightenment, but 
but just practice what you already are. So, if there is any kind of secret in Zen, I guess this comes closest to it, but it's obviously it's not hidden. Um, it's only difficult to see because it's so obvious. And um, it's like perhaps the fish doesn't see the ocean or the bird doesn't see the sky it flies in. <clears throat> so when you think about it, Reality itself uh, has no desire to be anything other than what it is. Reality is just reality. And reality goes by many different names. It could go by truth. It could go by Buddha nature. Or thusness, or suchness, or just it. But whatever name you wish to give to reality, that's what we are. Unfortunately, when reality takes the form of human beings, that's when all the problems start. Because a human being gets caught in delusions, delusions of separateness. And, as the song says, I still haven't found what I'm searching for. So the human being goes off on a quest, on a search, when he really, he or she is nothing other than the reality of just this moment. So human beings in their delusion suffer. Whereas a Buddha, if you like, is simply a human being who has actualized the self as reality. So in Zazen practice, we are just simply actually actualizing ourselves or realizing ourselves as the reality of this moment, whatever this moment is, which is constantly changing. So you see, if you see it from that perspective, then there's no need to worry about reincarnation, is there? Because where are you ever, ever going to ever be? Wherever you are, you're always going to be here. If you're going to be here, aren't you? There's no other place to be. You're only ever going to be reality. You're never going to lose it because you are it. So the text I'm going to introduce you to today is called the uh, Genjo Koan. It's a very famous first chapter um, in Dogen's um, 95 chapter book called the Shobo Genzo, or Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, this book here. Dogen was a prolific writer. He wrote a lot in his short life. And his writing is often very philosophical, but also very poetical, and uh, often very difficult to translate or even to interpret. It takes some effort to stick with it. Um, but unlike the historical Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, we don't, of course, have any, uh, he didn't write anything down for us to read. 
everything that Dogen wrote, we have. We don't have to uh, go to secondary sources like we have to do with the historical Buddha. All we know about what the historical Buddha taught are all secondary sources from hundreds of years later. We don't know the exact words the historical Buddha spoke. We do know the exact words that Dogen spoke because he wrote them down. So the, uh, the, the, um, the, the title of this chapter, um, Genjo Kohen. Oh, by the way, the, the title of the book, the, the True Dharma I Treasury, in the Zen tradition, that is basically what the historical Buddha transmitted. So in the Zen tradition, he transmitted it to his the successor. It's called Maha Kasyapa. And there's a famous story in the Zen tradition where the Buddha's sitting at a big assembly of all his disciples and uh, he holds up a flower and Maha Kasyapa smiles. And so that was the, the transmission of the true Dharma I to Kasyapa. And Kasyapa passed it down to Ananda and Ananda passed it down and eventually it came down to a guy called Bodhidharma who was an Indian. Uh, Brahmin, and he came across to China and he established Zen in China. And that was passed down through the ages. And uh, finally, it gets passed down to Dogun, and it gets passed down all the generations until uh, it comes to a guy called Mazumi Roshi who came to the United States. And Mazumi Roshi passed that down to Joko, and Joko passed that down to Barry and other Dharma successors. So that's the kind of like historical myth of, um, of, of Zen, this direct transmission right from the historical Buddha. The actual uh, title of the chapter, uh, Genjo Khan, it's even complex uh, understanding the title. And uh, there's a wonderful book by, uh, who's written on, uh, <coughs> two or three books, Shohaku Okamura who is a, a Soto Zen teacher uh, who uh, was raised and brought up in Japan, but who uh, at a young age uh, was encouraged to learn English by his teacher, Uchiyami Roshi, who wrote a wonderful book called Opening the Hand of Thought. And uh, so he came to the United States at a young age and uh, he now established, eventually established a Zen center in Minnesota, I think. And, uh, He's about 70 years old now and continues to teach and, and transmit. And uh, he's a wonderful translator and interpreter of Dogen. This particular book is all on the, uh, the Genjo Koan. <coughs> and um, so uh, Okim, um, Okimura uh, talks about how uh, Gen, the, 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 the symbol Gen means to appear or to show up or to be in the present moment. And Jo means to become or to complete or to accomplish. And as a verb, Genjo means to manifest, to actualize or to appear and become. And as a noun, it refers to reality as it is actually happening in the present moment. The word koan has a number of different meanings. Some of you would know it as a, a, a public document, often a government document like a, a decree or a law, which was um, in those days would, would seen as being unchangeable and unquestionable, applying to everyone. And so that became symbolic of the koan stories in Zen. Uh, 
that expressed something unchangeable. Koans were taken to be an expression of truth or reality in, in Zen tradition. Um, but in this particular, there's different subtle meanings, uh, and um, apparently, according to Okamura, the uh, koan in this title, so Genjo koan, means uh, the ko means equality of all things, and the an means the uniqueness or particularity of each and every being. So again, you know, we, you, this is entering into the uh, the wisdom teachings or the wisdom beyond the Prajnaparamita teachings that teach this two sides of the coin. So, you know, we say form, boundlessness, or you can say equality, difference, sameness, difference, or, um, or uniqueness. The particularity of each and every being is unique, even on a, on a, you know, on a tree, each little leaf is unique, uh, and so on. <coughs> and uh, so the, the word koan in this, is actually, we are, as human beings, the intersection of equality and difference. We are both. And uh, so and reality or, uh, includes both of those aspects. So reality is non-dual. So it includes both the equality of all things, the oneness of all things, and it includes the uniqueness of all things. Uh, so Okamira often uses the uh, example of um, the hand to illustrate that. So uh, we have a hand which functions as a unit and that is the example of everything being one, of everything working together. At the same time, each finger of the hand is unique and, and, and has different functions. So the little finger functions differently than the thumb does. And, but at the same time, it's also one hand. So we are like that as human beings. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read uh, about four excerpts from the, the, the essay of the Genjo Koan. So this is the first excerpt. Um, when all dharmas are the Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, life and death, Buddhas and living beings. <coughs> when the 10,000 dharmas are without fixed self, there is no delusion and no realization, no Buddhas and no living beings, no birth and no death. Since the Buddha way by nature goes beyond the dichotomy of abundance and deficiency, there is a rising and perishing, delusion and realization, living beings and Buddhas. Therefore, this is a beautiful line, this last one. This is where his poetry comes in. Therefore, flowers fall even though we love them, and weeds grow even though we dislike them. So we'll just take that particular section. Um, and just interpret it a little bit for you. So the first sentence, uh, all dharmas, all things, uh, reality. Dharma can be a teaching, it can be reality. Um, uh, and so when all dharmas are the Buddha dharma, uh, there is delusion. You know, we often have this, this, this kind of understanding 
This first sentence is an understanding of traditional Buddhism. So we have the, the notion in traditional Buddhism of there is delusion and there is realization. There is samsara and there is nirvana. And we want to uh, liberate ourselves from samsara to nirvana. There's practice, there's life and death, and uh, Buddhism living beings. But see, the problem with, and um, this corresponds to what's called the four seals in, in Japanese Zen Buddhism. Um, and uh, the first uh, seal is uh, um, life is suffering, there is suffering. Uh, and uh, the second seal is uh, uh, emptiness, and, or impermanence, sorry. And then there's the, the lack of, the third one is the lack of a, uh, an existing self, uh, a lack of essence. And the fourth one is nirvana. Now in traditional Buddhism, the idea is that we are in, our, in suffering and we want to liberate ourselves from suffering to nirvana where there's no suffering. And... Um, but the problem with that is that it, it sets up this desire for nirvana, which is a contradiction in terms. So as long as we're desiring something, we're going to suffer. So that desire for something uh, other than what we already, already are here this moment is always going to set us up for suffering. So it takes many, diff many different forms, you know. It takes the basic forms in our culture of striving to improve ourselves in whatever way that means financially, um, academically, career-wise, whatever. But even in, but as it moves into the spiritual realm, it takes on these more subtle forms of you know, aspiring somehow towards some uh, spiritual improvement of some kind. Uh, it's not often referred to as spiritual materialism. Right. So, uh, um, so what the Heart Sutra does, so the, the, the second sentence, is the expression or understanding of the wisdom teachings, the heart the prashna teachings. When the 10,000 dharmas, that simply means everything, the whole universe, right? When the 10,000 dharmas are without fixed self, there is no delusion and there's no realization. There's no Buddhas, there's no living beings, there's no birth and there's no death. There's no birth and no death since, because everything is just one interconnected, seamless whole. There's no separate thing that is born or dies. That's why it says in the Sutra, no eye, ears, no tongue, etc., etc. Because it's just the whole. And there's no way, as I said before, you can't represent that or symbolize that in any way. You can't step back and observe the universe, right? Even quantum physics knows that. All you can do is be it. Right? You can't observe it, you can only be it, because that's what we are anyway, so there's no choice. Right? Then the third sentence is the teaching of Dogen. He brings these two things together. And, and then the third sentence. Since the Buddha way by nature goes beyond the dichotomy of abundance and deficiency, so abundance in this sense refers to arising and realizing in Buddhas, and deficiency refers to perishing, delusion and living beings. 
actually usually seen, the first one, abundance, is usually seen as positive and deficiency is usually seen as negative. He says in the third sentence, Since the Buddha way by nature goes beyond the dichotomy of abundance and deficiency, there is arising and perishing, delusion and realization, living beings and Buddhas. Therefore, flowers fall even though we love them, weeds grow even though we dislike them. So, reality has to include that sense of uh, delusion, the sense of separateness, the, how we experience ourselves as human beings is just as much a part of reality as anything else, otherwise you get back into a duality. So, in this intersection of equality and difference, what Dogen's third step is to, to realise that intersection and then express it in your life. To live it in your life, to be it in your life. See, when we're only caught in delusion and we don't have any realization of equality, when we have no realization of oneness, we suffer. When we have a realization of oneness, we still suffer, but it's different. Flowers fall even though we love them stands in for anything that we love. Could be our mothers, could be your favourite flowers, <laughs> anything that you treasure. Eventually it's going to go. Um, and similarly, um, weeds are going to grow whether we like it or not. Whatever weeds would represent to you, maybe, you know, the next electricity bill or whatever. Um, so these, as uh, we don't stop experiencing the heartache of the flowers falling. Right? And it doesn't matter. You don't become cold and uncompassionate as you as become Buddha. You still can feel the loss of something that you love. And you don't stop being human. Um, we, we're just more open to living it. We just become more open to experiencing it. We're not trying to push it away anymore. Because we realize that we don't have to be afraid of our feelings. And, um, and with weeds, well, hopefully with the kind of insights and realizations that we have, well, weeds are just weeds. Uh, they grow. You pick them and they grow again, you just continue picking them up again if you want to. Or you can rename them, don't call them weeds, call them something else. <laughs> Live with them. So, another excerpt from the Genjo Koan. Um, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be verified or realized by all things. To be verified or realized by all things is to let the body and mind of the self and the body and mind of others drop off. There is a... So, um, that's a very famous uh, section. And uh, in a sense, it's often interpreted as 
in we start to study the cell, so we are aware of our thoughts and sensations and feelings and the patterns which come up and come in. And, and it's useful to get to know that stuff, right? Uh, but ultimately, we can, we can let all of that go, forget all of that, because what we're wanting to do is just unite with the oneness of just sitting, which is uniting with the reality of what is. It's the samadhi of what is. It's the oneness becoming one with what is. And uh, in Shikantaza practice, that's all we do. We just become one with what is. If you're doing a more concentrated practice, like counting the breath or uh, focusing on a syllable of a word, then you're becoming like in, the, in, in the, uh, one of the famous Zen koans where the, the monk asks, does the dog have Buddha nature, which is a kind of indirect reference, how, how is it possible that I have Buddha nature? And, and the master says, Mu, which literally means no in, um, in Chinese, but is given as something one concentrates on. And the, in, in that particular koan practice, you, you, you throw everything into Mu. Everything becomes Mu. You go Mu, you Mu all day, all, as much as you can. And then eventually, the, the, by focusing on that one syllable, you break through into the oneness of everything. But you don't have to do that. There's a much more gradual way of doing it. And in Shikantaza, we're just becoming one with the reality of what is. Don't try and push things away. Just allow everything that's coming up to come up and allow yourself to experience it. And in doing that, we, we forget. We forget the self. We become moment by moment we just be what we're we're being what we're experiencing and then it says so rather than you know uh, this idea of where it says um, to be verified by all things uh, is to let the body and mind of the self and the body and mind of others drop off that's that sense of oneness and then um, it's a sense in which also, like, we don't, we're not goal-oriented in this kind of practice, in the shikantaza practice. We're not trying to get anywhere. And when we, when we let go of all that, because we are already it, right? And in letting go of that goal, the kookaburra lights up our candle, like the kookaburra realizes us, right? We are the kookaburra's call. We're not separate from it. As this floor, these walls, everything is ours. Every, our true faith is coming to meet us each moment. Right? Another little sentence. So, yeah, when one, when one first seeks the Dharma, I mean, we have to, you know, it's inevitable that everyone who comes to this kind of practice, we do start off as seekers, we do start off as searchers. So when one first seeks the Dharma, one strays far from the boundary of the Dharma. Okay? So as long as you're seeking, you're, you're, you're moving away from it, you know. Now it's like that, you know that children's game where you um, hide something and you say cooler or warmer, mm. And, uh, you know, the more you're seeking, the more cooler you're getting. The more you stop seeking, the warmer you're getting, right? 
So, um, when the Dharma is correctly transmitted to the self, when you stop seeking, one is immediately an original person, one is immediately original enlightenment, original face, true nature. And the final excerpt that I'm going to read today uh, um, is um, Dogen was a very has some, has some very philosophical notions of time, being and time, time being, and we can't go into that today. And it's quite complex, but this one touches on some of that of that stuff. So firewood becomes ash. Ash cannot become firewood again. However, we should not view ash as after and firewood as before. We should know that firewood dwells in the Dharma position of firewood and has its own before and after. Although before and after exist, past and future are cut off. Ash stays in the position of ash with its own before and after. As firewood never becomes firewood again after it has burned ash, there is no return to living after a person dies. However, in Buddha Dharma, it is an unchanged tradition not to say that life becomes death. Therefore, we call it no arising. It is the established way of Buddhas turning the Dharma wheel not to say that death becomes life. Therefore, we call it no perishing. Life is a position in time. Death is also a position in time. This is like winter and spring. We don't think that winter becomes spring, and we don't say that spring becomes summer. That's very profound, isn't it? So I'll just go through that line by line a little bit. See, we normally are conditioned as human beings uh, Maybe not our uh, Aboriginal brothers and sisters or the indigenous peoples that lived here before we came, but in our culture, you know, we const- we conditioned to, to construct time as linear, and uh, so he says here, firewood becomes ash. <coughs> ash cannot become firewood again. Um, we also, you know, we're conditioned to think of as some kind of, um, you know, permanent thing that continues through time. You know, it's like our, our own life. Like, I'm not the same person I was when I was five, or you know, when I was ten, I wasn't the same person, and so on, like, through our life. But we, we think of it as some sort of sense. There is a continuity there. Yeah. But that, that continuity is created by memory and narrative. And uh, memory and narrative are part of conventional or relative truth, whereas absolute truth is just reality. Okay? Like, you know, you've ever seen, it was, it, it's, it's a very difficult experience to go through when one, my, one of my best friends had a parent who developed dementia, his father. And, uh, you know, when you see that person's memory going, uh, there's no self left anymore, you know? And, uh, so what we take as ourself is very, very fragile and very precious. But it's gone like that. Um, so, you know, firewood becomes ash, but ash cannot become firewood again. 
But we should not view ash as after and firewood as before. Ash is just ash and firewood is firewood. Mm-hmm. There's no substance or substratum that turns into ash. Right? It's the whole thing. There's no essential, there's no fixed self in wood. There's no fixed self in art. There's no fixed self in anything in the universe. Nothing is fixed. Everything is interdependent and shifting and moving all the time. Life is movement. Full stop. You stop moving, you're dead. So we should know that firewood dwells in the dharma position of firewood and has its own before and after. So this is where we're jumping out of linear time. Center yourself in this moment, right? This moment has, we can say, a before and an after. But we're not stepping back and trying to see it like that. It's almost like a river coming down a mountain, <coughs> one person at the top of the mountain, another person halfway down the mountain, another person at the bottom of the mountain. They're all sort of witnessing the same river, but it's all unique at that same time. There's no before and after. Has anybody, anybody heard of the block universe theory? Mm-hmm. The sense in which um, every moment is happening at the same time, in a sense. It's, you just can't get your head around it. It's really hard to express. Um, so, um, although before and after exist, you know, past and future are cut off. You know, the past and the future are just this construct. Right? We don't have any reality. The only reality past and future have is that it helps us navigate around our culture. You know, I can say, I'll meet you on Monday. Uh, just ways of navigating reality, culturally. As human beings, as human beings, we create this. So, as firewood never becomes firewood again, after it has burned to ash, in the same way, you can never become five years old again, or ten years old again. In fact, you can't even become that again. It's already gone. So it says, as firewood never becomes firewood again after it is burned to ash, there is no return to living after a person dies. When your mum dies or when someone dies, you're not going to see them get up again and start living, are you? anybody ever witnessed that? My, I haven't. And if they were, they wouldn't be the same. Wouldn't be the same form. However, in the teachings of the wisdom teachings, right, Dharma, it is the un- unchanged tradition not to say that life becomes death. How can life become death? Life is life. Death is a part of life. But that's, that's just a change. Like, the only thing... If we're here, we're alive, right? We're experiencing awareness. Prajna. The primordial awareness. If there's no awareness, there's no life. Life is awareness. 
Awareness is life. Therefore, we call passion, awareness, no arising, and we call it no perishing. It's the constant. Everything else is arising and perishing, but the awareness of passion, life itself, I assume, has always been here and always will be here. It's impossible to imagine no universe and no life. It's just impossible to imagine. Even with the Big Bang theory, the Big Bang has to come from something, right? So life is a position in time, death is also a position in time. Each moment of our life, up to the time of our death, we will just be experiencing each moment, just experiencing each moment. And hopefully, if that's what you'd like, as in Zen tradition, you know, the, the old Zen tradition, the masters know when the time has come, they write their death poem, <laughs> sit down on the zafu, pass away consciously. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could all do that? So, winter is winter, spring is spring. Winter doesn't become spring, spring doesn't become summer. Each moment is just unique and it's the intersection of everything and the uniqueness of this particular being that we happen to be at this particular moment.